This file is part of the Swiss Libri Lecture Podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family, and colleagues, but we ask you to respect our copyright. So feel free to share it online, but preserve this message and don't modify the file in any way. Also, the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time are not necessarily representative of the views of Liberty Fellowship. Hey everyone, looks like uh, we're coming up here to do our seventh now episode of the Swiss Libri podcast. Um, yeah, I'm Aaron, and I just thought it would be nice uh, to introduce the lecture today. It's it's one of the ones, it's kind of a Libri staple, I suppose. It comes out every now and then. It's one of Richard's lectures. And I'm pulling it out today because um, I think it has a little bit to say about how we situate ourselves in a society that we feel at many times leaves much to be improved. Um, it seems like we're trying to imagine a better world or how we can change things for the better. And when we do that, sometimes we get trapped and discouraged. We can become cynical and even hateful, uh, which is all the more frustrating because hatred is usually one of the things we're trying to fight against. Um, there's no easy answers to this, but I find some ideas in this lecture helpful reminders when thinking of these things, um, which is a little bit more on my mind right now since the world has been so stormy lately. So I hope there's something here that... Um, can be a benefit to you. Thanks. And here's a lecture. Then towards the end of my talk, I want to move on to looking briefly at cynicism. We're going to focus mostly on irony. And cynicism, in my understanding, or at least how I'm going to be using it, is one possible response to or outcome of what might be called an ironic stance. And I would argue that even in, in, in a fallen world, it's possible that irony will always degenerate into cynicism. Now, I would argue that for most people under 40 years old, irony is our default position. We often resort to an ironic stance in order to maintain distance from a situation, to protect ourselves, and to avoid implicating ourselves. The ironic stance resists disappointment. If one never identifies oneself too strongly with anything, then one cannot be disappointed. And so in a strange way, it offers a bit of security. Now, for a lot of people from older generations, this ironic stance is incomprehensible. And one example uh, some people might have, those of, of you who are younger, uh, I don't know how many Simpsons fans we have, but when I talk at Labrie, everybody resonates with the Simpsons. Everybody knows the Simpsons. And most of those people have had the experience at one time or another sitting and watching an episode of The Simpsons with their parents. And their parents don't find it very funny. Whereas it's hysterical to most people under a certain age. I'm not sure what that age would be. But... If one were to turn on a television today and watch a few minutes of pretty much any sitcom, I think that it would only take a matter of a few minutes before we encounter humor, which is based on either cynicism or irony. So before we go any further, I think that it's important to look at a definition of each of these words, and uh, of, of these two words, cynicism and irony. So the Oxford English Dictionary defines a cynic as a person disposed to rail or find fault now usually one who shows a disposition to disbelieve in the sincerity or goodness of human motives and actions and is wont to express this by sneers 
and sarcasms. Also a sneering fault finder. So it's a person disposed to disbelieve in the sincerity of the goodness in people. And their reaction to that is usually uh, sneering, fault-finding, sarcastic response. Now, I I think that this definition captures quite well what we normally understand as a cynic. A cynic is a person who is unable to believe in the goodness of human motives. Irony, on the other hand, is defined a couple of ways. And this is a trickier word to define. And so that's why I say I hope that it will get filled out as we as we move along. But irony is defined firstly as a figure of speech in which the intended meaning is the opposite of that expressed by the words used. It's a figure of speech in which the intended meaning is the opposite of that expressed by the words used. It usually takes the form of sarcasm or ridicule in which laudatory expressions are used to imply condemnation or contempt. So a very simple example of that would be when somebody messes up and you say, nice job. You're intending the opposite of what the words actually say. And it usually implies condemnation or contempt. A broader definition, and the one that might be more useful to us, is that irony is a condition of affairs or events of a character opposite to what was or might naturally be expected. A contradictory outcome of events as if in mockery of the promise and fitness of things. Now, irony and cynicism have always been around. They're not new ways of looking at the world, nor are their forms of humor new. They've been around since, I'm sure longer, but at least since the time of Socrates. In fact, much has been written on the irony of Socrates, and I think that I think that Soren Kierkegaard actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on Socratic irony. But the question that we want to be looking at, want to look at today is why has this become, as I said earlier, our default position? Why has it become the stance that we so easily take? Why do I think this is an important topic? The reason I feel that it's important is that there seems to be little hope in our world. At a point in the not too distant past, we were full of hope. We had the promise of modernity, the belief that things were getting better. As a people, we felt as though progress was unstoppable and that things in all areas of life were just simply going to continue to get better. Things were going to continue to improve. We were on the upswing. As most of us know, though, this hope crumbled in the 20th century. A couple of world wars were enough to take care of that, although there was much more that we could point to. Today, we live in a time when hope is at a minimum. Where would we possibly put our hope? In our governments or politicians? Unlikely. In our religious leaders and institutions? Also unlikely. In science? As life gets more technologically more sophisticated, it seems to become more complicated. As one disease becomes curable, another comes to take its place. Science, too, seems to be an unlikely candidate. So the question is, is hope a live possibility? And I don't believe that this is a problem that exists solely outside of Christianity. It's not just a secular problem. I talk to enough people who've grown up in the church to know that a lack of hope is not only a problem for those outside the church. What I want to argue is not that irony itself is the problem. There is something right about irony. There is something perceptive about irony. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled, filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Sounds a lot like what Jedediah Purdy says. He says, nothing will ever surprise us. Everything we encounter is a remake, a re-release, a rip-off, or a rerun. We know it all before we see it, because we've seen it already. And in this book that I'm going to be referring to, he goes on to describe the never-ending recycling of images, stories, and events. I'm going, to, I'm going to go through all of my sources in just a second. I'll, I'll let you know what it is. What, though, is a response to this truth from the Christian perspective, from the perspective of a Christian worldview? What I want to argue is that irony, apart from hope, will lead to despair, and apart from love, will lead to cynicism. Now, what we're going to move into is a, a little bit of history in order to show why this is why this stance toward the world has become so obvious. And I say a little bit of history to avoid the obvious criticism that I'm not nearly doing justice to some very big ideas. But before we go any further, I'll just talk for a second about the sources. One of the things that I draw heavily on is an essay out of a magazine called Image. I think it's produced out here on the West Coast somewhere, and it's a Christian arts magazine. And I came across a paper, actually a, a former student gave me this paper by somebody named Brett Lott. And it was called The Ironic Stance and the Law of Diminishing Returns. The Ironic Stance and the Law of Diminishing Returns. And one of the books referred to in this paper is called, and this is the Jedediah Purdy book, it's called For Common Things, Irony, Trust, and Commitment in America Today. And it sounded like a pretty intriguing book, so I I did. I love when this happens. You do a quick search in the internet, and I found a brand new but used copy for about five bucks or something like that. So it, I got it. And it's a it's a fascinating little book, and it's not uh, written. I don't believe he's a Christian, or not about religion at all. But it's it's about this problem of irony in America today and the lack of uh, people's desire to commit to anything. And his his agenda is specifically political, but it it has a lot of good things to say. And I also refer to Richard Rorty's book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Solidarity. And there's a couple of other things that I look at. I look at something by Merrill Westfall called Suspicion and Faith, and an essay by a guy named Carl Matheson called The Simpsons, Hyper-Irony, and the Meaning of Life, which is found in a book called The Simpsons and Philosophy. Good book again. Anyways, so why are we so ironic? It's been said that the danger of modernity was arrogance and that the danger of postmodernity is cynicism. So let me just unpack this statement for a few minutes. Modernism thought that there was one way of seeing the world. And when I refer to modernism, I'm referring to uh, the ideas that circulated in a time period beginning sometime in the 17th century up until... Uh, there's still modernity still carries some weight today, but it's starting to be overtaken by postmodernity. So that's what I refer to when I'm referring to modernism. It's the Enlightenment and all that follows. Modernism thought that there was one way of seeing the world, and that and that that way was the way the world was seen through Europe and through male eyes. There was also a belief that humans were getting better and better in every way. 
once we had moved out of an enchanted world into the disenchanted world of the Enlightenment, we could finally begin to progress with science leading the way. So once we moved out of an enchanted world, this is uh, something that we refer to when we talk about the, a, a world which still God and supernatural was still very much a part of it. When we moved, when science came along and started explaining some of that stuff away, then we moved into a disenchanted world. So things changed, though, in a number of important ways. As I said a minute ago, with the horrors of the first half of the 20th century came the awareness that maybe we weren't becoming better after all. The myth of progress was shown as being the illusion that it was. Now, I'll read that quote from Purdy again, and then we'll go on to talk about it. The one that I read uh, in the little blurb that I gave after the or before the last lecture. He says, We practice a form of irony, insistently doubtful of the qualities that would make us take another person seriously. The integrity of personality, sincere motivation, the idea that opinions are more than symptoms of fear or desire. We are wary of hope because we see little that can support it. Believing in nothing much, especially not in people, is a vague point of vague pride, and conviction can seem embarrassingly naive. Irony is powered by a suspicion that everything is derivative. So far as we are ironists, we are determined not to be made suckers. The great fear of the ironist is being caught out having staked a good part of his all on a false hope, personal, political, or both. And I would also argue uh, that we could throw in with the political and personal, we could throw in spiritual commitment as well. Essentially, the point of this quote is that we were duped by modernity. There was a point where we accepted all that modernity promised. This this myth of progress was something that we were promised. Science was going to lead the way and things were going to continue to get better. But we were let down. And so now we're in a position where we're not going to be made suckers of again. We're not going to buy into anything. We also began to discover that the white male European perspective on the world wasn't the only one. Others began demanding a voice. We came to see, at least sometimes, not just that the privileged perspective wasn't the only one, but that it wasn't even the best one. We now find ourselves being faced with a multiplicity of voices and perspectives. While this can be a bit intimidating, we need to remember that this is, or at least can be, a good thing. And this is a bit of an aside, but I love the fact that some of the very first critics of Eurocentrism, so of a white European way of seeing the world, were the early Bible translators in Africa. They went down there and they learned other languages. They learned to speak these other languages. And in doing so, you learned to see the world in a slightly different way. And so they were amongst the first to recognize that perhaps the white European perspective on the world, the white European male perspective on the world, might not be the only one. And sometimes, not even the best one. So now we're confronted with a multiplicity of voices and perspectives. Everybody's arguing for their voice, for their perspective. And that can be frightening. That can be a bit intimidating. But I think that we need to remember that there isn't one perspective. There are many perspectives. We do all see the world slightly differently. And that can be a good thing. That can be a, 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 a beautiful thing, in fact. Now, as Merrill Westfall points out in his book, Suspicion and Faith, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud came along and pointed out that not only are our perspectives our own, 
but they are shaped by some not-so-pure motivations. Not only, not only do we find that there's a, this multiplicity of perspectives that I referred to, we also find that our perspectives are shaped by things like fear, weakness, pride, greed, and other people. Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud were what Paul Ricoeur calls the original prophets of suspicion. They were wrong about many things, but who isn't? But one thing that they taught us is that very often there is a difference between the reasons that we give for our actions and our actual motivations. So they were among the first to point out that there is a difference between the reasons that we give for our actions and our actual motivations. Westfall claims that they're actually plagiarizing the accusations of Christ against the religious establishment of his day. That's sort of the point of this book, Suspicion and Faith. Now, there are lots of different conclusions that can be drawn from these observations. Some will claim that while we have been unsuccessful so far in finding this one way of seeing the world, while we've been unsuccessful so far, we need to keep looking for that one way of seeing things. Others will draw the opposite conclusion and claim that in the face of this, we need to realize that there is no right way of seeing things, and so we should just stop playing that game. Richard Rorty, one of America's leading philosophers, draws the conclusion that we need to adopt an ironic stance toward the world. Irony for Rorty is the stance that we ought to take once we realize that our perspectives are just our perspectives. And I want to make it clear that I'm not agreeing with what Rorty is saying here. In the, in the face of this, we ought to have a more detached view of what we all believe. This doesn't just refer to our view of others, but to our view of ourselves and all that we hold near and dear as well. Now, I've just used the word ought twice in the last few sentences. You may wonder how someone who claims that our perspectives are just our perspectives can go on and make the claim that we ought to do anything. This is an obvious and correct critique of Rorty, but he's very aware of this problem and claims that he isn't making any ontological or metaphysical claims. He's simply suggesting that the old way of speaking, the old way of seeing things isn't working all that well anymore. The old way of seeing things has become worn out. And he suggests that maybe it's a time for, maybe it's time for a change. Now, Rorty defines an ironist as someone who fulfills the following three conditions. So this is what Rorty defines as an ironist. She has radical doubts about the final vocabulary she uses because she has been impressed by other final vocabularies. So by final vocabulary, essentially what he's referring to in its most simple formulation is worldview. I, th I think that that's probably the thing that I can, the best way to make the point. So somebody who... Uh, she has, the ironist then in that replacing final vocabulary with word, world, word, worldview. Let's read that, read that again. I can't even speak anymore. She has radical doubts about her worldview because she is being impressed by other worldviews. So that's the first condition. Second condition is she realizes that argument phrased in her present vocabulary or through the way she see th sees things can neither underwrite nor dissolve these doubts, so she can never actually step outside of her worldview in order to critique it or to critique others. And thirdly, insofar as she philosophizes about her situation, she does not think that her vocabulary is closer to reality than others, that it is in touch with a power not herself. 
So essentially what Rorty is saying there is that an ironist is somebody who comes to believe that their perspective on the world, their worldview, is just another worldview. No worldview is right. No worldview is closer to truth, to reality, than another one. So let's just all accept it and get on with it. Rorty thinks that this is the stance that we should all adopt, not because it's true in any deep way, but because it's time for a change. It's as though he feels as if the old way of seeing, of thinking, has become dried up, and we take this new worldview out for a test drive and see if it doesn't work better. Rorty is a pragmatist. For him, truth is what works. This seems to be the view that much of our culture takes today. So to sum up where this ironic stance comes from, we can simply say that a growing awareness that a worldview, a perspective, or a final vocabulary is not final leads us to the conclusion that since a worldview is just a worldview and will quite likely fail us, we had best keep some distance from it. We ought not stake too much on ours or anyone else's perspective. Okay, so how is this irony, this ironic stance, manifested itself today? For those of us who are old enough to think back to the sitcoms of the 70s and 80s, I usually have given this to uh, students in their 20s, so most of them can't think that far back to the 70s and 80s. But if you can, if you are old enough to think back, uh, think of shows like MASH and All of All in the Family. These shows, while scathing in their critique of certain things, still took themselves and their moral agenda pretty seriously. Compare these shows with shows of today and of the past few years. Shows like The Simpsons and South Park are relentless in their critique of everything. Nothing is sacred. Even though it's been over for a few years now, I think of Seinfeld as the quintessential ironist. In these shows, irony is used to undermine everything, including their own voices. The ironist doesn't even take him or herself seriously. And I think that Seinfeld was particularly good at this. The show pointed to its main characters as petty, selfish, mean people. I think that it's interesting to note how the show ended in 1998. And I have wondered what the point was of putting the main characters in jail for being ironic. I guess that I wonder if they were trying to make a point about all of this. I'm not sure. I don't know what the point of it was. But I thought that it was pretty interesting. I like the distinction that Jedediah Purdy draws in his book For Common Things between cynicism and irony. He states that while the ironic response to all that we've been talking about is eager acquiescence, as with Rorty, the cynic, harboring at least a residual sense of his own superiority, stays home and denounces callow, frivolous partygoers. The ironist goes to the party and while refusing to be quite of it, gets off the best line of the evening. An endless joke runs through the culture of irony, not exactly at anyone's expense, but rather at the expense of the idea that anyone might take the whole affair seriously. So cynicism in this understanding tends to be a bit more self-righteous and a bit meaner in that it often gets directed at anyone and everyone but oneself. It is the belief that I or we know better Cynicism, I believe, is the temptation of the ironic stance. I want to talk for a bit more now about how irony looks in today's world. I also want to talk about the possible problems with this stance, despite the truth that might be present in it. In For Common Things, Purdy begins by describing the culture of today, the culture that we all live and participate in. 
Because we all live in this culture, we may be so close to it that we don't see it for what it is. But when someone comes along and describes it for us, we recognize it right away. Purdy points to two ideas that, combined, make it difficult to take anyone very seriously. Firstly, self-aware in the extreme, we are permeated by Sigmund Freud's view that we are all ill, that everyone's motivations are in some measure selfish, ignoble, or neurotic. He goes on to note that today's young people are adept with phrases that reduce personality to symptoms, among them passive-aggressive, repressed, and depressive. This idea combined with the idea that values are no longer understood as unchanging, impersonal standards, but as changeable personal guideposts, leads to the conclusion that we are utterly contingent, culturally created, and therefore superficial beings. Before Freud, it's claimed by Rock, before Freud, it is claimed by Roxana Robinson, our feelings belong to us. They were powerful, violent, necessary, but private. They were ours. Freud took our feelings over and taught us to analyze them, which turned us into the objects of our own dissection. The idea of passionate engagement came to be seen as naive and foolish as we moved from an innocent 19th century pre-Freudian childhood to a 20th century adulthood, detached and analytical. So what happened was that we gained a detached, objective view of our feelings. We ourselves become suspect. We unmask ourselves and everyone around us. We are left with a picture of the self as a very thin facade. While this may be seen as a problem for some, many have taken this as an opportunity to recreate themselves. Purdy quotes management guru Tom Peters, who states that we are CEOs of our own companies, me, Inc. To be in business today is to be the head marketer for the brand called you. Marketing becomes a form of life. Purdy says the ironic stance invites us to be self-absorbed, but in selves that we cannot believe to be especially interesting or significant. Its sophistication is sapping, a way of cultivating suspicion of ourselves and others. Refusing to place trust, place its trust in the world, irony helps to make a world that is more likely to be worthy of despair. And so, despite our assiduous efforts to defend ourselves from it, disappointment and the quiet, pervasive sadness have crept into our lives. All of this has gained steam in the consciousness of people today. Even 20 or 30 years ago, people believed in things. People believed in progress, governments, politicians, religious leaders, etc. We spend much of our time now deconstructing everything from institutions to language. I can't tell you how many times I hear students critiquing and breaking apart religious language. The language of the Christian subculture that was taken for granted by so many for so long. And I can remember myself being in this position, having grown up in the church and having heard this Christian language for so long. As somebody the other day actually told me there was a name for it, and I can't remember what it is, but there's a, a, a label for this, the language of the Christian subculture. And so today I hear many students coming in and breaking and tearing apart that, that language. Now, I believe that irony can take a toll on people. As I said earlier, I think that irony without hope will lead to despair. 
I've spoken with enough students at Labrie that are products of our ironic age to know that despair is a very real outcome. It can be an unsettling experience to have one's worldview exposed as shallow and contingent. Another possible result of the ironic stance is cynicism. Again, as I said earlier, irony without love will lead to cynicism. The reason that cynicism is so easy to fall into is that it's difficult to consistently direct irony towards oneself. Locke claims that we have even moved into what is being called a post-ironic age, an age when irony gets turned on irony itself. In a sense, irony was used to cut out the legs from under everyone but the ironist. The ironist, it was assumed, had a privileged point of view, that of the objective detached observer. Now, though, irony is turned on the ironist himself. We can't even take our own irony seriously. One of the interesting claims that Carl Matheson makes in his essay, The Simpsons, Hyper-Irony and the Meaning of Life, is that with the abandonment of any sort of absolute knowledge came what he calls the cult of knowingness. That is, even if there is no ultimate truth or method for arriving at it, I can still show that I understand the intellectual rules by which you operate better than you do. I can show my superiority over you by demonstrating my awareness of what makes you tick. In the end, none of our positions is ultimately superior, but I can at least show myself to be in a superior position for now on the shifting sands of the game we are currently playing. Hyper-irony is the comedic instantiation of the cult of knowingness. So in this case, comedy or this type of irony is used to attack anyone who thinks that they have a handle on how things are. This knowingness that he speaks of is at the heart of cynicism. Cynicism is used as a tool to show my superiority over you. Cynicism is the failure to see the goodness people and the log in one's own eye. As Merrill Westfall says, let us not find ourselves in the position of the Sunday school teacher who, after telling the children the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector going to the temple to pray, said, Now let us pray and thank God that we are not like that Pharisee. As I've said repeatedly, irony is not a bad thing in and of itself. There is very often truth in it. It can be used to dissemble things that need dissembling. It can be used to sound out idols. Both Lot and Westfall make the claim that Christ was the master dissembler. There are plenty of places where we can look to in order to see Christ at work in the unmasking, in unmasking someone, but I'm going to follow Lot and look at the meeting between Jesus and the rich young ruler found in Mark 10. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words his face fell and he went away grieved. For he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, 
how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And I think that that's as far as I need to read. Now, we find a couple of interesting things in this passage. We find that Jesus uses irony to expose and to teach. But there are a couple of differences in how Jesus uses irony. The first difference is found in verse 21, where we read that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Before we go on to read how Jesus exposes this man, we find that he loves him. And in my mind, that puts all that follows in that section in context. All that Jesus says to him is said in love. The second difference we find is that there is a reason for hope. After he says that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, his disciples express a lack of hope. Christ responds by claiming that with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I think that this hope is missing from so many people's lives. This past term, I tutored two students who were deeply, deeply in despair and suffering from a lack of hope. Both have or had been Christians for a long time. One of them had worked for a number of years in full-time ministry. Both of them came to see their faith as empty, formulaic, and wrongly motivated. Both of them, through different circumstances, were dissembled, and I would say rightly so. But thankfully, uh, both of them One of them uh, seemed to come through this okay and left our branch with hope. And the other one, as he's fond of saying, isn't quite ready to throw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater. His hope is dim, but it isn't entirely gone. For those of us who are Christians, we cannot believe that everything and everyone is totally suspect. Now, for quite a while, I preach every month or two, and I've been working through Ecclesiastes. And I love the realism I find in it. The writer of the book is obviously very aware of the injustice that is present, the temporal nature of things, of the fact that things will go wrong and they'll go wrong often, and that death will meet us all. In the face of this reality, he doesn't express despair. His hope lies in the fact of the goodness of God's creation as a gift. He claims that we ought to live this life in the reality of this fact. As Christians, we also have hope in the return of Christ and in the coming of his kingdom. So just to sum up and repeat what I've said a couple of times, irony without hope will lead to despair, and irony without love will lead to cynicism. So irony's necessary partners, then, are hope and love. 